We're going to give a shout out to all of ours who can't physically be with us, though they're with us. And we're in this new series uh, through the Lenten season in the book of Colossians. Open up to Colossians chapter 1, calling it the God-soaked life. We looked at the first 14 verses last week, and we talked about this connection, right, that a gospel life is a God-soaked life, and the gospel is the good news, the good news that Jesus brings life. The good news, it doesn't matter what you've strayed into or how long you've strayed into it. It doesn't matter how far you felt you've gone away. The good news is Jesus can make all things new. The gospel life, it's a God-soaked life. It's a life from beyond us that comes into us to revive us and restore us. And that this God-soaked life is a prayerful life. And we looked at Colossians 1, 9 to 14, specifically for the week, right? I don't know how many of you were able to pray 9 to 14 this week. I got a few emails of some of you putting it into practice. But if you're needing some guidance in your prayer life, I commend to you that section of Colossians 1, 9 to 14. It's a good connection between the God-soaked life and the prayerful life. And we gave a little background to help us kind of understand the letter. And we talked about the author of this letter was Saul of Tarsus. And if you were around in the first century, you would have to say, you'd raise your hand and say, wait a minute, Pastor, you need to say his name again. It can't be Saul of Tarsus who becomes the Paul, the apostle. Yeah, it's the Saul of Tarsus who so vehemently and violently opposed the movement of Jesus, Saul of Tarsus, becomes Paul the apostle who is advocating allegiance to this Jesus, who writes 13 of the 27 New Testament books. So if you need a poster child, if you come in and you feel like there's just no way God could use my one and only broken life, I commend to you Saul of Tarsus. I think he used him to write half the New Testament to remind us that no one is beyond the grace of God. And Paul the Apostle, I learned this week, has a pretty substantial visual portrayal of his life coming up, and I wanted you guys to see a clip of this that's coming up next month. So I commend that movie to you. I can't think of a more well-timed Lenten movie for us as a congregation going through the book of Colossians. I did a little research on the writers of the movie, and the lead writer said his main source and text was Scripture. He said he committed to write this film from God's word and he filled in the gaps of the human experience in between because obviously scripture doesn't record all the events that occurred between all those exchanges. So he said he attempted to take God's word and then just insert what he thought were maybe the human interactions around those scenes. So I commend it to you. Let's be the kind of body that embraces a film like this and supports a work like this. And so I know the Simpson family will be all four of us sitting there watching Paul the Apostle. And did you know that in one letter's change of his name, Saul means great one. Paul means little one. God just changed one letter, and in that, he gave us a pathway that's a descent into greatness. The pathway of Jesus is a descending into greatness. So he says, hey, Saul of Tarsus, I know you thought this was the definition of greatness. I'm gonna change your name to Paul and you'll become less and I will become greater through you. And that's Paul the Apostle. That's the author of the letter we're studying in the book of Colossians. And I think culturally this week, we lost 
a Paul the Apostle type figure in our, especially in our era and our generations this week, when Billy Graham took his last breath of life this week at 99. I mean, sure some of you are reading some stories about Billy this week. I was just rejoicing for him, thinking about, can you imagine the lineup in glory around Billy Graham? Can you imagine the people who've just been waiting? They thought, surely, Billy, you'd come when you were 90, surely 95, 99, the Lord takes him home. And if there wasn't a, what a picture of a life who went from great one and chose the path of descending into greatness to become the little one. You know, it was Billy Graham who years ago, I, I listened to an interview and he said, you know what, all the accusations, all the things that were thrown at Billy as he was publicly ministering, he resolved early on in his ministry never to publicly defend himself. And I challenge you to try to find any instance where he did, and he had plenty of opportunities too, but he chose to go the way of Jesus and join Jesus before the trial of Pontius Pilate. They're crying out, crucify him. Pilate turns to Jesus and says, what are you gonna say for yourself? And what did he say? Well, let the Father, let the Father be my defender. And I think Billy Graham was a great example. A life well lived, an Apostle Paul, Colossians 1 type life. So I commend to you Billy Graham's writings. And if you've never read Billy's biography, I think his autobiography is an outstanding read because he was a giant of our generations. I can remember my grandparents sitting and talking about their first real connections of understanding who Jesus was, was tied to a man named Billy Graham, an apostle Paul-like figure. And where is Paul when he's writing this letter? Where did we say when he's writing this letter to the church in Colossae, Colossae was in modern day Turkey, he's where? He's in Rome behind bars. Now what's significant about that? Why does Rome take a guy who seems to be in kind of obscurity, he's just a Jewish scholar, why is Rome so concerned about this Jewish scholar? Because of what he was writing. Remember the Roman Empire of that day, it's hard to overstate the dominant influence of the Roman Empire when Paul's writing this letter. It was the empire that spanned 4,200 miles from India to England. It was reigning and ruling for 1,500 years. That would be the, United, the equivalent of the United States. We've lived 17% of the Roman Empire's reign and rule. As a country, we've been around for 17% of that 1,500 years. And the level of influence they had, it was the allegiance to Rome that they declared. Within the walls of Rome, Rome was going to solve everything. Rome was proclaimed to be the light of the world. Rome was proclaimed to be the pathway to prosperity and peace. Rome would defend you. Rome would provide for you. Rome would come through to you. It all came down to Rome. The empire was everything. And here's, do you see the irony of this? Here's the apostle Paul. In Rome, behind bars, writing letters like Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians. And he's writing these letters. Follow this now. He's writing these letters about a kingdom that has no beginning and has no end. Who was convinced they were that kingdom? The Roman Empire at that time. They were convinced they were the kingdom that would have no end. And Paul's writing these letters to say, no, hey, Roman Empire, you have an end date. Do you know the definition of an empire with an end date? Do you know when you visit it today? Do you know what the ethos of that is? It's called museums and monuments. 
I love Rome. I had the privilege of visiting Rome 11 years ago. It's an amazing city. But when you visit Rome, what are you ushered into? You're ushered into an empire that once was. It had an end date. And Paul's in prison behind bars in that empire that was convinced was going to live forever. And he's writing about, ah, there is this Jesus. You put him on the cross. He rolled the stone away. He walked out of the grave. And he is building a kingdom that has no beginning and has no end. Why did they want to throw him in jail? Because he was writing things like, Rome is not the light. Christ is the light. Rome is not your hope. Christ is your hope. Rome is not your provider. Christ is your provider. Rome is not your savior. Christ is your savior. And when you're, still a little, when you're just a little Jewish scholar writing that stuff, and the Roman Empire is flourishing, where are you going to spend a bulk of your Jesus following days? You're not going to spend him in a mansion. You're not going to live in prosperity. You know where you're going to be? You're going to be physically beaten, emotionally abused, and thrown behind bars. You know, Paul lived a bulk of his Jesus-following days in that environment. He wrote a bulk of his letters from behind bars. Because the empire, the power that was to be, they grasped a letter like Colossians. And they thought, if this letter gets out, oh boy. If what Paul's writing is true, oh boy. And here's the beauty, gang. We're 2,000 years removed from that. And we get to ask this question, who was right? Was Paul right or was Rome right? Welcome to the letter called Colossians. Chapter one, we pick it up in verse 15. Let's see what Paul is saying in these verses. Verse 15, he speaking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I want you to underline in your Bibles every use of the word all in this section. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. This is one of the most, this is the kind of a theologically thick section of scripture where the Christ-exalting nature of these sentences could be in the top tier. This is probably one of the most Christ-exalting sections of the New Testament, the second half of Colossians 1. You need a good section to start putting to memory? This wouldn't be a bad starting spot right here. And he begins with an amazing declaration about Jesus. We just read right through it. But think about the statement he makes. The, he's the image of the invisible God. How are you an image of something that's invisible? Think about this. How can you have an image of something you can't see? Has to be more to it, right? Because I know my version of image, today it's right, you take a picture on your phone, you put a photocopy on a fax machine or a photo, you know, you photocopy something. You have an original, you place, and you get an image of it. But the word that Paul uses here is the Greek word icon, and it means, here's what the exact uh, translation 
means, that which exactly reflects its source. So Paul is saying, it's a kind of the first, here's, here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at how, G, how Paul shines, shines a spotlight on Jesus, and he wants to clear away the fog. He wants to clear away the fog of these things. Who is God? What's he like? And how do you relate with him? He's going to clear away this fog because the Roman Empire laid 50,000 miles of roadways, and what did that immediately usher in? It ushered in a melting pot of humanity and religion and philosophy and spiritual teachings. So there's all these views and opinions about spiritual truth and who God is and what he's like and how you relate to him. And Paul is stepping back, and he's going to shine a spotlight on the person of Jesus. And he's going to say, I'm going to introduce you to someone who stands above everyone else. He is the image of the invisible God. So when you want to know what God is like, you just look at Jesus. So Jesus reveals who God is. That's the first thing Paul says. You, you come in, you want to know, who is God? What's he like? How do you live with him? You just lock into Jesus. The better you get to know Jesus, the more you get to know who God is. Because the image of the invisible God, he's the exact representation of his being. When you look at Jesus, you see God. When you see God, you see Jesus. Do you see this is why the Gospels are such an important part of our faith? If you have a Bible with the words in red, the letters of Jesus, the, the sayings of Jesus, we need to know the words in red well. Why? Because the better you get to know Jesus, the more you get to know God. So you turn to the Gospel of John and you open up to John 3 and you see him interacting with Nicodemus, a religious leader. You want to know how God, what he thinks of religious authority when it's off the rails? Look at John chapter 3. That's how God relates into that. Or how about in John chapter 4? What is God like with a woman who's kind of, he's got more of a colored past, who's got some things about her reputation that others would walk away from? Jesus moves towards her, Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 crosses a racial boundary, crosses a gender barrier, and he speaks to a woman who's kind of been sleeping around and has got kind of the reputation, and he moves towards her. You want to know what God's like? Look at John 4. Look at Jesus, Samaritan woman at the well. Or John 5, pool of Bethesda, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. John chapter 5. Have you read it recently? It's an amazing scene. And this past June, when I was in Israel, I was determined one site I absolutely had to get to was a pool of Bethesda, because it just has meant so much in my own journey and trying to help others as a pastor and in my own life. But the tour guide said we weren't going to go to the pool of Bethesda. I thought, oh, no, 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 no. So it's like, no, no, we're not going to be able to get to it. So I looked on the schedule, and I saw this one day. We were in Jerusalem, and there was like a four-hour period of time where we were going to get back early. It was going to give us a little rest. I looked and said, yeah, four, like four to eight right there. I'm going to find the pool of Bethesda. But it wasn't with our tour group. I was going solo. Yeah, not wisdom here, but don't, stay with me. So I'm in Jerusalem. It's Ramadan. They said about 300,000 from the Muslim world don't look like me. Tall, skinny, white, bald, that wasn't a... Um, I went down to the hotel desk. I said, hey, I want to get to the pool of Bethesda. How do I get there? She pulled out a map. She showed me, here you are. Walk down here, turn here, turn here, turn here. I said, how far is it? Oh, you're 15, 20-minute walk. I said, great. And then there were two other, two other guys on the trip who said, yeah, I'll go with you, which was super, we had three of us. So I didn't go completely solo. There were three of us. But we weren't five minutes from the hotel, and we were headed the wrong direction. 
We were walking and walking and seeing all kinds of parts of Jerusalem, and we finally stopped this car who was going down the road and said, hey, we're trying to find the Pool of Bethesda. And he looked like he was Palestinian. He looked like he wasn't real familiar with the Pool of Bethesda, but he knew exactly where the Pool of Bethesda was. He said, I know where the Pool of Bethesda is. I said, how do we get there? He says, you need car. That's his only thing he said. I said, no, we don't have a car. It's called feet. We're walking. He says, you need car. Long way. So two and a half hours later, our other two guys bailed somewhere along the way. I stayed and persevered. I had to find the pool of Bethesda. And I walked up to that scene. There's a courtyard. They're pretty confident, by the way. Even those who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, they don't doubt the pool of Bethesda and they don't doubt what he did here, which is ironic when you walk around Israel. Those who aren't following Jesus don't question that he lived and what he did. They might not just believe he's the Messiah, but they don't question what happened to the pool of Bethesda. This is where Jesus came and in John 5, he encountered a man laying on that, probably that kind of patio area there, courtyard area, who had been there for 38 years on his mat, paralyzed. And then on the backside of that, there was a big pool of water and the theory was that when the waters were stirred at certain times, the first person in the pool got healed. So Jesus walked up to him and said, do you want to get well? Unbelievable question, right? How about that question? Do you want to get well? What's behind that question? I think not everyone who's laying by the pool of grace is interested in getting in. Sometimes we just like the attention we get laying by the pool of dysfunction and brokenness and pain. We like all the attention. We like everyone rallying around crisis moments around, if we're real honest. And Jesus knows this guy, 38 years. Dude, you think he'd figure it out in 38 years, how you beat everybody else in the pool. So Jesus knew he had to cut through the chase. Say, hey, do you really wanna get well? I don't think he's convinced he does. And I just sat there on this little bench. I was just living the story again. just thinking about all the ways Jesus comes and says, do you want to be well? And I look up and I see this sign. This is, the, this is a little like writing. You probably can't read it there on the side, but it says Jesus, the bottom, said Jesus is all powerful, omnipotent. He always has ways and means to help you. Man, that was a moment for me sitting there at the pool of Bethesda and thinking about Jesus is all powerful, omnipotent. He always has ways and means to help you. I wonder if God brought someone to church this morning just to hear that. I wonder if you're in the middle of something where you wonder, you can't figure out how you're gonna get through what you're going through and right here, pool of Bethesda is for you today. The Jesus of Colossians 1, he is all powerful. And he has the ways and means to help you. Man, I needed that this week. I've kind of been in a sequence the last couple weeks on the kind of the pastoral job front. Just to give you a little window into it, I, I found myself, it was kind of one of those moments where everybody else has gone from the office. I can't remember what day it was. And we have this big stash of chocolate in the office like really big stash of chocolate in the office. That's a story for another day, but we've got this stash. And everybody's gone from the office and I found the stash of chocolate. I'm sitting behind the front desk downstairs, sitting on the floor, and I'm dragging out this stash of chocolate all around me and I'm just eating like Hershey's and Reese's and Dove and Gear Deli and 
I'm just sitting there in my own pool of Bethesda of chocolate. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Like, what is happening, Lord? I feel like I'm in the middle of PMS or something. Like, what is going on? And I'm just tired, and I'm stressed, and I'm frustrated. I'm just mashing chocolate. I'm killing it. And I started to cry. I really wanted to talk to a friend that I lost last spring. I wanted to call Bob. And it wasn't ending. I said, Jesus, this chocolate's not going to fix anything. And then I remembered that sign by the pool of Bethesda. Simpson, you want to get some help out of this? He's all powerful. I have the ways and means to help you. Trust me. Clean up my mess. Slide the bin back under the desk. I wipe away the tears, and I go to my office to my knees. Because, gang, whatever it is you're may be going through? The pool of Bethesda asked this question, do you really, really want to get well? Paul would say, I'll introduce you to someone who can help. Colossians 1. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And from him and to him and through him are all things. Christ is all. Drop to your knees. Go Gypsy Smith on this story. Remember last week, get the chalk out, draw the circle. Jesus, start a revival right in the center of that circle. That's our Lenten journey. And some days, maybe you've got weeks like I've been having where I just literally feel Jesus is gonna carry you. Anybody been in that spot? You're like, I don't know I'm gonna get through this next hour or day. Jesus, I'll just carry you through it. Because he's all powerful. Because he's got the strength. Some of you are in your own pool of Bethesda with stuff going on at home or pool of Bethesda with things breaking down. Pool of Bethesda and overwhelming grief and loss and hardship. Pool of Bethesda. And the message is sitting there staring at that sign. We look with our eyes. Colossians 1. That's the gift of a God-soaked life. I have no idea. Life is hard enough with Jesus. I've got no earthly idea how you navigate it all the way through without him. And I suspect it's a big part of our role to reach out to those who may be searching for that kind of help and say, let me introduce you to the Jesus who can see you through whatever it is you're going through, who can be a light in your darkness, who can be strength in your weakness. I know I can't be, but he can be. Do you know him? Saul of Tarsus met him, and he was never the same. If you've genuinely met Jesus, I know one thing's for sure. You will not be the same. You might have heard about Jesus. I'm asking if you've met him. And when you meet him, things change.
So Jesus reveals who God is, verse 16 and 17, second part of the spotlight here. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers and authorities, all things were created by him and for him. How about verse 17? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you lost count, five times he uses the word all in four verses. He's trying to make a point. Now, if you're Rome and you're the Roman emperor and you read those sentences in that letter, what's your definition of power, ruler, authority, and throne? It's singular in their mind. There's only one power. There's only one authority. There's only one throne. Do you follow? The emperor is that person. Empire, Roman, is that place. And Paul is writing about, um, yeah, your throne is actually lowercase. And Jesus of Nazareth, the one you put on the cross who walked out of the tomb, who you can't find his body, you're all freaking out. Your own Roman guards lost their life because they can't find his body. Just find the body and you'll shut us all down. They can't find the body because there's no body to find. He rose. And that Jesus is redefining thrones, powers, authorities, dominions. Now you know why they put Paul behind bars? Because if this letter gets out and mobilizes a movement, the ticking clock starts for when the walls of the empire are coming down. Because in their mind, all things were created by Rome and for Rome. Rome holds all things together. Paul says, not so much. I want to tell you about another and so the second spotlight he shines, Jesus reveals who God is, and Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all that is, all that is. I came across a Harvard University student handbook. There's an interesting segment. Those of you in the academia world may appreciate this. I mean, when you think of Ivy League schools today, you don't necessarily jump to the most theologically centered schools. But did you know that when their origin, almost all of them were theologically centered at their origin. Listen to Harvard University. Student Handbook 1636, the year 1636. Quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. All but one school started before the American Revolution. All but one started to support the movement of Jesus in our country. All but one. Including Brown University. Several years ago, I was in Providence, Rhode Island for a couple of days, and our hotel was near Brown University. And I thought, oh, great, I'm going to go and visit Brown University camp. I'd never been there before. Did you know that Brown University was founded in 1764 by Reverend James Manning, a Baptist pastor? You know, most of the schools were founded by pastors or theologians, taught by pastors or theologians, and governed by pastors or theologians. Do you know that the first board of trustees at Brown University was made up of 36 people? Here was the first requirement, the first filter they used for who was gonna join the board of trustees. They wanted 22 Baptists, 
five Congregationalists, five Church of England, and four from Friends Church. That's classic Baptist math. They want 22. Everybody else gets single digits. Sorry, Baptists, but that's classic. That's your version of balance. But how different is that? How different is that? Their filter is first theological. It's not academic. It's not financial. It's not political. It's theological. We want to know Christ-centered people. We want Gen 17, three type leaders to lead our institutions like Harvard, like Brown. Are you kidding? All these Ivy League schools. This is their origin. So I stroll up to Brown University campus and I'm just having all this as a, a backdrop, just thinking about all the places I'm going to visit. And this is the first building that Brown University met in. It's kind of a little white this is the first building of, so Brown University's first classes were held in that. It was a Baptist church because James Manning was Baptist. And here's what Brown University, kind of the gates of Brown looks like today. I remember walking around through those gates and I wanted to, I wanted to find the chapel. I found the chapel. And I walked in the chapel and I thought, this is gonna be unbelievable. Just thinking about, I thought this is gonna be and right as I walked in the chapel, there's an elderly woman sitting at a desk. And she looks up and she says, hello, $3, please. I stood there. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought, I thought I was, I'm looking for the chapel of Brown University. She says, yes, you found the chapel, $3, please. And then she said this to me. It's not an active chapel anymore. It's just a museum. I'm telling you, church, I stood there and just a shudder went through the whole of my being. I dug in my pocket for three bucks, I handed them to her, and I walked around for the next hour, and I couldn't shake. The walls of this place, scripture everywhere, pictures of commencement services in the sanctuary, a pulpit that would be like the whole new level of pulpit, like those old school ones with the sound would project before sound systems, like they built out those ways the voice then would carry and project. Unbelievable pews with still some of the plates, you know? The plates with some of the names of the families that bought the pew and dedicated, like some of you want to do with your blue chairs, you season ticket holders, you want to, want to put your own little plate on your blue chair section, or this morning someone's lobbying for some padded chairs, let us buy our own padded chair and put our name on it, and it's our little spot, and there's like all those in Brown University, and I'm walking through this in all the spiritual history, in all the pastors and evangelists and theologians that were in there filling that, and the chapel services, and the meetings, and the governing structure, the chapel was the center of Brown. And 250 years later, there I stand. It's not an active chapel anymore. It's just a museum. How does that happen? Do you think Reverend James Manning could have ever pictured the day when the chapel went from the center to a museum? How about that 36 board of trustees? I haven't looked at the current board of trustees in Brown. I'm not sure how many clergy are on it. I'm guessing if you applied as a clergy member, that'd be your first filter off. That's my guess. How does that happen? Church, here's how it happens. A death by inches 
It's just one small little subtle decision linked up to another small little subtle decision. Strung out over 200 plus years, you look up and you say, how did we get here? Because the pull to drift is always gonna be away from being anchored in Colossians 1 reality. Here's the pull. You're gonna wanna drift towards compromise. You're gonna wanna drift towards skirting around the edges of Colossians 1 truth. You're gonna wanna drift towards kinda uh, softening it up a little here, giving in a little there, not standing firm and anchored there, maybe not proclaiming Christ is all, Christ is definitely center, but there's some others. It's kinda mixing in Jesus with some other key things. Anybody see this? This is how this happens. Somewhere along the way, someone says, yeah, we think Christ is almost all. Christ is all. And that's going to be anchored in that. And gang, I want you to know, since I had that exchange with that elderly, elderly woman at that Brown Chapel, there aren't many months that go by where I'm not strolling the halls of Eagle Church and the Lord brings that up once in a while and just says, hey, Simpson, what's it going to take that this place... 100, 200, 300 years from now? What's it gonna take that this place doesn't become a recreational center where people who move into Whitestown and Zionsville and, and buy a home here and they find out they can get a family membership pass at, pass at this white square building with a nice gymnasium and they can play basketball and volleyball and get a workout center in and, and go all these classrooms and get all these wonderful things done with their body and then there's, there's a portfolio at the front desk in case someone ever asks, did it all, was it always a rec center? And the front desk worker pulls out the album and flips open and says, oh no, in here, this used to be the sanctuary. This was a church, a church. what they used to do in here? Here's what they used to do. And there were blue chairs and there were people and there was a band and there was scripture and there were classrooms and there were children and there were students and there was a loft and there was Ignite Camp, and there was children's curriculum, and there was God Soaked Life Colossians series. That's what used to be. May it not be so, Eagle, by God's grace, right? That he would keep us and hold us, that no matter how dominant and noisy the Roman Empire becomes around us, that he will find us faithful to this. Colossians 1, God-breathed book, faithful to proclaim what? Jesus, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Christ is all. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's everything in between. He's the image of the invisible God. By, for him, by him, through him are all things. Rome is not your hope. Rome is not your light. Rome is not your provider. Christ is. That from this place, if we stay anchored in that gang, we have the shot. But lest we think, hey, there should be a holy tremble in all of our, all you gotta do is study history here. And permission given to make sure we stay the course. We own this together as a whole. If you for one shot think from this platform, God's words being compromised in any way, it's your responsibility to come forward and have some conversations. Because by his grace, we'll keep this proclaimed clearly and Christ's name exalted clearly. And hopefully the legacy of Eagle Church will never become a family rec center. We'll always be a house of God. 
where disciples are built up and sent out to the ends of the earth with what message, with what Paul is saying. Some may go behind bars from this very place to proclaim the same Christ that Paul is giving his life for. From this place, let us be that kind of a body. That's why our children's ministry is so important in the curriculum. You know, in children's ministry, they go through the Bible every three years, Genesis to Revelation. That's so critical. And student ministry, why is Ignite Camp and girls' retreats, why is that so important? Because of this, gang. The pull is to compromise. The pull is to drift. The pull is to skirt the edges of truth. Why are Wednesday night discipleship classes so important? Because of this. Why is Sunday morning and gathering regularly and staying immersed together when we worship, that we worship in spirit and truth, that we open God's word, that we're getting clear about who God is, what God's like, how we live with him. This is why this is so important. Because the drift, it just takes one inch to another inch to another inch. And then you look up and you go, how did we get where we are? So Jesus reveals who God is, and Paul says, hey, and Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all that is. Not of almost all that is, of all that is. The very breath we're holding in our lungs now, Paul is saying, Jesus is responsible for holding your breath of life at this very moment. And then lastly, I wrap with this. Jesus, he's the definition of supremacy. Do you see that in the last verse for today? Verse 18. The second part of it. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, if you're Rome, what do you think about that sentence? Supremacy was the trademark of the Roman Empire. And here's Paul saying, I got a new capital S supremacy to present to you now, little s supremacy. Paul says, Roman Empire, the best that you can do is stand in the shadow of the blazing brilliance of the glory of King Jesus. Let me tell you about him. You're going to stand in his shadow. Do you see why they shackle him in Rome? They can't let that letter get out. 2,000 years later, who was right? Who was right? Paul? Or Rome. Augustus came and went, Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, all of those were emperors. And they all had an end date. And now you can travel the globe in the name of King Jesus, and here's what you'll be ushered into. <laughs> you get to walk through 190 nations today in the name of Jesus. Some of you have to go underground, but in the name of Jesus, here's what you'll find. His kingdom has no end. And then you can stroll the streets of the empires of the world that have their end and visit their monuments and see their museums. But you now you know why the New Testament says, hey, here's what God's monument and museum is. What? You're the body of Christ on earth. You're a letter of Christ. It's human beings. It's people. He takes one by one. He fills them with his spirit. He transforms them with their lives. It isn't about buildings. It isn't about structure. It's about humanity. And he's deployed his kingdom. It's going to have no end. They can't stop it. And Paul knew it. And he gave his life for it. This is the Jesus of the God-soaked life. He reveals who God is. He is the creator and sustainer of all. And he is now the new definition. When the word supremacy comes up in the dictionary, right beside it, Paul says there's really only one phrase beside it. Jesus of Nazareth. 
supremacy. There's your definition. Malcolm Muggeridge, you guys familiar with Malcolm Muggeridge? I close with this quote. He's a British journalist who came to Christ. He was near the end of his life, and he sat down and got his pen out, and he reflected on all that he had experienced on his journey of life. And after becoming a Christian, I felt like he put it in a Colossians 1 context for us. Listen to how Muggeridge summarizes. And he wrote this in the 70s, so kind of hang with. you kind of get the historical context here. Muggeridge says, we look back on history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has written of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back on my own fellow countrymen, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song, that the God who made them mighty shall make them mightier yet. I heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I seen an Italian clown say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, more enlightened than Ashoka. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that had the American people so desired they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquest. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. England, now a part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and bankruptcy, Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy, Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate, and America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep her motorways roaring and smog settling, with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam, all in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. Hear this now. Behind the debris of these self-styled, solemn supermen, there stands the gigantic figure of one, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone, mankind may still have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. Church, that is the God in whose name we gather. Jesus of Nazareth, nothing more, Nothing less, nothing else. Let's pray. Jesus, it's hard for us to get our arms around the significance of Paul's pen in that jail cell and the ripple effect 2,000 plus years later to our sanctuary here in Whitestown, Indiana. Thank you. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for everyone who's given their lives that we might hold this letter. I think of all around the world that have tried to keep us from having this in our hands and knowing these truths. Thank you that you sit enthroned. Thank you that in Jesus you've brought us into a kingdom that has no beginning and has no end. Thank you that we know what to do with the question, do you want to get well? When we're sitting at our own pool of Bethesda, 
Thank you for the reminder today. We turn to you, the Jesus of Colossians 1, and we rest in this. You are all-powerful, and you have the ways and means to help us. We love you, we worship you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to wrap up with